You're listening to the Sportsman's Empire Podcast Network brought to you by Full Sneak Gear. Check out their entire lineup at fullsneakgear.com. Also be sure to check out our entire stable of podcasts at sportsmansempire.com. New from Moultrie Mobile, the Feed Hub offers first-of-its-kind cellular connection and control for nearly any spin cast feeder on the market. When used with the Moultrie Mobile app, you can monitor feed and battery levels, run feeders on demand, receive alerts when feeders are clogged, and remotely adjust feeding times. The Feed Hub is ideal for anyone who maintains feeders. Remove the guesswork and save time by planning feeder maintenance before you drive to your hunting property. For more information, visit MoultrieMobile.com. You're listening to the Sportsman's Nation Podcast Network brought to you by Lacrosse Boots. The Lacrosse Alpha Burley Pro is 100% waterproof from top to bottom. They're great for crossing creeks and walking through wet grass. As we all know, if your foot becomes wet during a hunt, you might as well call that hunt over. Pick up a pair of Alpha Burley Pros today and check out their website at lacrossefootwear.com. Welcome to the Nine Finger Chronicles podcast, brought to you by Exodus Trail Cameras, the number one podcast for bow hunting product information and hunting stories from across the nation. And now, here's your nine fingered host, Dan Johnson. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Nine Finger Chronicles podcast brought to you by Exodus Trail Cameras. It's hump day, everybody, and that only means one thing. We got a good, good, great BS session in store for you today. We're going to be talking with Western New Yorker Tom Wheelahan, and he's going to BS with me about where he hunts, how he hunts, the terrain he hunts bucket list i mean you name it we cover it today we talk about muzzle loaders something that i never talk about because i've never used a muzzle loader on a hunt i've shot one before we talk about that we talk about strategy we talk about food plots we talk about uh his property i don't know we talk about everything so that's what today's podcast is about hopefully you guys enjoy it quick quick warning Uh, we had to fight some technical difficulties so please bear with us through uh, portions of this podcast but uh, overall it's another great podcast commercial deer lab so if you guys haven't heard me talk about deer lab uh, now i'm going to talk about deer lab and the reason is I am going to be relying heavily on last year's trail camera information to make strategic moves for this upcoming season. How will I do that? So as I gathered all of the trail camera photos from last year, I put them into Deer Lab. And what Deer Lab does is it calculates wind direction, it calculates moon phase, it calculates everything, all the information, time of day right month wind direction all that stuff pulls that from the internet pulls the information from the trail camera photo merges it together calculates it all and now what you have is the ability to go into deer lab and say okay i'm looking for this particular buck i know that he uh likes a northwest wind so i I I look for a northwest wind. I look at what trail cameras he's at. I look at the moon phase. And basically what it is doing is it is helping you forecast deer movement. And 
you take a particular buck that you've maybe been you maybe you have trail cameras for four years and now he's a shooter and now you want to go after him uh, the data that's collected on deer lab you'll be able to use to position yourself with i guess on weather patterns and moon phases wind direction time of day whatever that's going to allow you to forecast his deer movement and put you in the best possible position on the properties that you hunt to intercept him uh so you'll look at it and you'll say hey man this thursday uh, i got i got a, a northeast wind i need a northeast wind for this pinch point that he visits on northeast winds in mid-october on this particular moon phase i'm going to be in that particular tree stand and uh, the goal is to use that data to intercept him and that is why i love deer lab so please go check out deerlab.com slash nine fingers uh enter your information and you can sign up for a free 30 day trial membership uh do it enter your all your past uh trail camera information and i'm telling you it is definitely worth it so go check that out now today Let's get into the BS Session Podcast with Tom Wheelahan. All right, everybody. On today's podcast, I am joined by Tom Wheelahan. How you doing, man? Oh, I'm doing well, Dan. How about you? I tell you what, I'm doing really good. And the reason I'm saying that is because every single day means it's closer to hunting season. Uh, I got my elk hunt coming up. Uh, I got, uh, you know, whitetails starts uh, October 1st. And I don't know about you, but now's the time where I I start ramping up my excitement. How about you? Oh, yeah, dude. Every waking day is like, you know, the excitement is just that much higher. Um, for me, the Western New York season opens October 1st, but I'll be heading to Kentucky in two weeks. Oh, nice. Um, for their archery opener, which will be an absolute blast for sure. Oh, nice. So you, uh, you got an out of state hunt plan. That's cool, man. So before we get into the bread and butter of this podcast, why don't you tell everybody yes, sir. where you're from and what do you do for a living? Yeah. Yeah. My name is, uh, Tom Wheelahan, uh, born and raised in Western New York, uh, about an hour or so from the city of Rochester. Uh, um, I work for a CPA firm in Rochester as an auditor, um, uh, and actually, this fall will be my tenth anniversary, tenth uh, tenth year bow hunting, which will be is you know crazy to think. But yeah, you know, I'm a younger guy, but it's uh, you know it's it's pretty cool just to look back on you know the growth and the memories already. Yeah, absolutely. So, how old are you? I'm 24. Okay, 24. So you started when you were 14, huh? Yeah, sir. Gotcha, gotcha. Okay. Yep. So auditor, um, I have to do some auditing type of responsibilities at my current job and uh i like i'll be honest with you i am not a fan of having to go through and check and verify (laughs) certain things uh like is that something that you don't mind doing is it like that at all or is the auditor just kind of like a uh it's auditor by title only right it's 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 more of like an accounting position Okay. Um, we're not really like showing up like surprise, you know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. We gotcha. Like, you know, um, we kind of work with the companies and, uh, you know, it's not necessarily a sexy position. <laughs> That's for sure. It's not, uh, 
you know, the most exciting gig, but I think it's pretty engaging and pretty interesting when you get into it. Um, you know, but for sure, I'd rather be hunting whitetails. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> any day of the week, you got to be kidding me, right? right but you got to make that money to spend on whitetails first, right? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Priorities are priorities, that's for sure. That's right. Yeah. So, let's see, you have a six-month-old brand-new kid, right? First, first one? Oh, yeah. First one, yeah. All right. So oh, yeah. Talk to me about that. How's that treating you so far? <laughs> oh, it's been awesome, man. Uh, it's been a roller coaster, that's for sure. It's, but you know, it's really been a, I would say, like a really enriching experience. You know, at the end of the day, um, he's just a happy little boy, and you know, he's healthy, and that's all we could ever ask for. Yep. Um, starting to get some sleep now, for sure. So, which means <laughs> you know, we're we're starting to get some sleep too, which yeah. is awesome. Add two more of them, and then let's have another conversation. Oh my god. <laughs> I can't even imagine. No, it's not fun. The old lady's talking, but you know. Yeah, yeah. We'll see. We'll see. Yeah, give it. Give this one some time. I'm telling you. Okay, maybe two kids. Maybe two kids. But do not right. let hard, her, hard, hard cap. You know, too. Yeah, don't let her try to pull the old slick one on you some night after you've had too oh, much yeah. to drink. And next thing you know, oh, it's like, you hey, need to artificially cap it, then you know, go to the doctor <laughs> and artificially cap it. Amen. Amen. All right, so let's talk about this. Um, you sent me an email. You know, you're a you're a whitetail fanatic, oh, yeah. man. You just love all all that stuff. So, um, you are you were born and raised here in the Greater Finger Lakes area of Western New York. Now, describe to the people who don't know what are the Finger Lakes. Okay, so the the Finger Lakes are like a series of uh, freshwater lakes and kind of the western sort of panhandle of new york um and you know they're big attraction for people uh locally and a lot of tourists for sure um but it's really well known for its uh its wine country oh okay uh, very fertile soil for uh you know certain certain white wines and things like that so draws a lot of people and there's a lot of fertile ground which means there's uh pretty good whitetail hunting for us uh here for sure nice nice so that's the area that you kind of live in is that Finger Lake region? A little bit west of it uh, uh, now, like more more so, you know, in between Rochester and Buffalo, a little west of it, but uh, uh, definitely, you know, not even an hour drive. Gotcha. So do you get lake effect snow in the wintertime? Oh my God. It's, <laughs> it's, it's pretty, it's pretty crazy here, man. Man. It's, uh, and, it, and it can be pretty harsh on the whitetail for, uh, uh, also for sure. Yeah. Um, but the drivers, oh my, and, and the commute, you know, your commute multiplies and, you know, by at least two. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's, it's, it's pretty crazy here. So talk to me about some of this lake effect snow, because I've always been interested in how that works, right? So the water is warmer than the air temperature, which creates like a, all the moisture starts to yeah, seems, rise right. into the atmosphere, right? Yeah. It seems to just like cook up you know, steadily, steadily, right over the uh, Great Lakes. So for us, it would be, uh, you know, Lake Ontario, Lake Ontario and Lake Erie. You gotcha. know, Buffalo getting more Lake Erie and uh, Rochester getting more Lake Ontario. Gotcha. Um, so where I am now, I'm in the sweet spot of both of them, which is, you know, wonderful. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but, uh, yeah, it gets pretty pretty crazy. You know, it's, uh, it's, it's nothing to have, you know, two feet in a flash. Yeah. Um, and, and just, you know, have absolute chaos pandemonium on the roads right right so on on you, your time on this planet what's the most amount of snow 
that you have ever been witness to? Oh my God. I'll have to think about that. It would be at least probably two and a half feet in certain locations. Um, right. Like down, down in my farm, which is a little more elevated. Um, you know, it's, it seems to be like a little bit of a microclimate there. Yeah. Uh, just because of how, how high the, you know, the plateaus tends to be there. And, uh, you know, it can really accumulate some snow for sure. Gotcha. So, you know, you kind of mentioned it, and this is going to be one of those podcasts where I bounce around a lot because that's kind of just the, the mood, yeah. that, mood that I'm in. But how does Absolutely. that large amounts of snow at one time affect the whitetail herd? Oh, yeah. So, they, you know, they really, uh, at least, you know, we're on familiar list, which is this is a. Uh, really big ag country, but there's also areas, you know, where there's, uh, big timber as well. Um, you know, alongside the, ag, uh, adjacent to it. <clears throat> so, you know, by the time the, the big snow hits, which honestly here, it tends to really come at the worst time for the whitetails, which is, you know, February, sometimes even March. Right. <clears throat> and it can be, you know, by then there's no real waste grain left in the fields and, and, and things of that nature. So they really end up hammering the woody brows and, you know, they, that's when you'll, you know, see them in rural or excuse me, urban areas and, and things like that, because they're just eating anything they can. Yeah. And, uh, you know, certain areas like a hemlock, uh, forest or something like that, that can, you know, really withstand the snowfall and kind of, you know, bear the brunt of it so they can walk around at least. Right. Um, you, you know, you'll tend to find them in the areas like that for sure. Right. So I was talking to a couple of guys who live in Wisconsin and I don't know if it was this past winter or the winter before where they had a ton of snow and we're not talking just like a, uh, a three, you know, two and a half feet, three feet in one at one time, right. like what you're talking about, but they had like eight inches here, eight inches here, eight inches here, oh, yeah. you know, and it just kept just piling pile up. Pile, along with cold weathers. Right. So, um, Oh, yeah. You know, they, these guys were showing me trails of like four foot deep trails through some of these farms that these deer were walking through to get to a, you know, and if you could set up on that, on that trail, you knew exactly oh, yeah. where they were going to come out every single time. Oh, for sure. So when you have those large amounts of snow, um, if it, oh, it makes it very predictable. Yeah, I can right, for right. sure. Have you ever had the opportunity? I'm looking at a. Yeah, I'm looking at it. Actually, sorry to cut you off there, Dan. Um, I'm looking at a deer right now that, you know, <clears throat> you were just referencing, the, you know, the real high snow and the, and the, uh, and the you know, big trail through a type of deal. Uh, I shot this deer, like, late in the muzzleloader season in New York, and it was a, it was a big snowfall. I mean, you know, if they, they're just, when you get that much snow, they just, you know, they can't go someplace, bottom line. Yeah. <laughs> you know, so it really reduces it down to, uh, you know, when you're looking at a map to, you know, really, really limited space that they can be in, and you can really capitalize on that uh, in certain scenarios. Right. So uh, it sounds to me like you've been able to take advantage of maybe some deeper snows, at least patterning where these deer are going to be moving maybe on a late-season hunt. Yeah. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Um, I mean, when you get snow like that, it just is – if you, you know, at least in December and uh, our muzzleloader season, if, if you have any sort of standing grain or, you know, significant waste grain still, I mean, you're just going to, you're, you're going to have the deer bottom line. Yeah. You know, they're just going to be there. And I see in this area, a pretty pronounced uh, second rut 
just because of the abundance of deer here and, and the abundance of fawns, you know, a lot of them with the ag around here tend to get to that, you know, whatever it is, 70 pounds or to be sexually viable, and they tend to come in around that time. Oh, wow. And, uh, yeah, you know, it's pretty it's pretty neat to kind of see the, you know, the, the action dip down and kick back up right before it closes. Yeah, yeah. So then um, with some of that, uh, you know, that heavy snow, do they tend to herd up a lot? Oh, yeah. Yeah, they yard up for sure. There's actually, a, you know, I'm thinking of a field that's almost in, in town here where I, where I live. And in certain times in February, you know, you'll see, you know, no short of 250 deer, you know, just and not even a two-acre field. It's just unbelievable. Right. You know, they have, you know the reduction in space that they have to live in in certain times of the year here is just I mean, I can't fathom living in it. Yeah. <laughs> That's so, for sure. So they they pretty much just as the food sources start to dwindle and the snow starts to accumulate, yeah. they just all go from like one big herd to from one yeah. food source to the next food source until it's gone. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. And, and there'll be pockets where you'll get, you know, you'll get a warm spell. And there will be some green exposed, and it does seem just they go nuts on the green when uh, the green up when there's any exposure at all. Right. Um, so they, they really capital. You know, they're smart. Uh, they capitalize on you know the opportunities they have to stay alive. Right. And uh, it's, it doesn't seem to have affected the herd uh, around here the the general climate. So. So they're obviously they they probably being used to it the herd being used to it year after year after year they they somehow adapt to that environment oh absolutely what if any is the winter kill like um it it fluctuates um and depending on you know when you really have that like i said that that late february window is really when if you get uh you know, significant snowfall and it seems to crust over and stay that way for at least a week. That's when you see, you know, just a, a huge die off in deer. Yeah. But it usually tends to be the younger deer. And, uh, at the end of the day, they'll, they'll reproduce for them going forward. And, um, even on years with the big winter, you know, what would, what would be said as a big winter kill? Um, you know, it doesn't, I've never really noticed it in the field, you know, subsequently. Right. What's the, uh, What's the body size of some of these bigger animals? Because I know, you know, when I think large-bodied whitetails, I think of some of these Midwestern states like Iowa, Wisconsin, Minnesota, and then up into Canada where, you know, you see some of these pictures where a 170-inch rack looks small because their body's so big. So, you know, I would think that in order to endure some of these – winters they have to have a lot of fat some really good body yeah. size to make it through absolutely yeah I, I would say a lot of you know mature deer around here would definitely be you know well over two bills on the on the hoof right um but <clears throat> i mean to have a three and a half year old deer gut out at buck 75 is is not you know you're not going to be blown away yeah um but uh they do tend to like, tend to grow large around here because they, you know, they really have to to, to withstand the, the weather. Because I I can attest to the fact that they, you know, they really do lose a whole hell of a lot of it uh, through it. You know, despite surviving, they they, they do, uh, you know, they do end up you know getting really small and scrawny and 
and whatnot. So yeah, gotcha. All right, now kind of transitioning a little bit. Um, this Finger Lakes between the Finger Lakes and you know where you live and in, in that area. Describe the terrain. I mean, are we talking yeah. mountainous? We talking because you said ag, but I think your definition of ag and my definition of ag are two different things. Right. Probably. Probably. So, there, you know, in at least the western portion of the state, if you're looking at you know New York, um, you know that really western panhandle of the state. If the closer you get to PA is when you really get into what is the Appalachian Plateau. So it really starts to, you know, that's where it gets really hilly. And um, I wouldn't say quite mountainous um, there in particular. That's that's the area that I grew up hunting. But it is, it is very, very steep. But, you know, you go an hour north of it, of this uh, Appalachian Plateau, and, you know, it's, it's swamp uh, flatland. And there's not, a, you know, not a hill on the place. And, uh, you know, the diversity in, in the uh, ecosystems is, is something that you know, I love um, because, you know, some of these flat swamplands, you, you know, you get um, waterfowl, unbelievable amounts of waterfowl, diverse waterfowl and things like that that, you know, you wouldn't get in a, in a hilly, um, hilly uh, setting. And, and uh, inversely, you know, you, we have a lot of bears in, in the hilly setting that you don't have to the north. So. Right. Um, I, I, I'm really drawn to the to the diversity in, in the landscape. So, what about the farms that you hunt? What's the terrain like on those? So, the uh, terrain features on my property it, it's very very steep. Um, there's a uh, it's three parcels in in, in total, and they're they're about 175 acres um, uh, cumulatively. And there's a big hollow road that runs between them. And uh, on the sides of the two hollow roads, there's yeah probably two ridge tops that are 300 feet high or so. And uh, I would say it's about 90% timber and 10% open fields now that we've had, you know, food plots that we've manufactured out of the timber over time because, you know, we, we, had, we didn't have anything. <laughs> you know, you got to uh, sometimes make things happen when you don't have, uh, when you don't have uh, big cornfields bumping up to your property or you own big cornfields, so to speak. So basically so, the, uh, the property that you that you hunt out of at one point was 100% trees. And then over time Absolutely. you guys went in and clear cut some areas and made, you know, some open fields for food plots. Yep. When you did yeah, that, sure. when you did that, did you notice an increase of whitetail on your property? Yes, for sure. Um, but you could also see over time, the effect of, of how you have to approach it. Um, we kind of initially saw a big influx in, in deer and buck activity and whatnot, but, you know, emphasizing on these small areas, you know, really we could see that repel effect that uh, I think Jeff Sturgis talks about um, where, you know, because you have these food plots and you're coming into them so often, they're going to still relate to your food plot. They're just not going to bet on it. So you'll never see them. <laughs> so right. once the deer kind of caught on over time uh, to how we were just you know aggressively approaching it, um, we really did see a, a change in, in the uh, effect they had, for sure. Right. So basically what you're saying is the first couple of years it was awesome until the deer got keen yeah, to it. Yeah, exactly. Okay. Yeah. And then all of a sudden yeah, it almost sure. had a negative effect, meaning they 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 knew that there was some kind of human presence and then they just didn't come out until dark. Yeah, bingo. Yeah, okay. And that was all confirmed by uh, trail cam photos and 
you know, it was, you know, scat and, and signed and, and it was all there, but you know, it just, you could tell that they were, they were on to how we were approaching it. And we started, you know, had to start thinking outside the box and, and, and probably being, you know, less overtly aggressive. How did you do that? How we were coming at these things. Um, I guess it took a, you know, a, a big sacrifice. Uh, this property that I hunt, my, my dad's retired and, and he hunts just about, uh, just about every day. So a lot of it, you know, kind of revolves around what he's doing on his day to day. And he's kind of, uh, one of those older, older school guys that, you know, I'm just going to deer hunt by volume and, and, you know, drown them out, so to speak. Yeah. You know, ladder stands and whatnot. <clears throat> uh, but with, with my old man there every day, he just, you know, evolved much more slowly than the guys now nowadays do you know with the podcasts and all the education he just he just didn't you know really notice you know uh ground scent and things like this as, as far as you know people do now uh, so that education for him that bell curve was a little slower uh, yeah. no question about it and uh you know it only the past couple of years have we got him to kind of you know come off the gas pedal on these food plots and you know hunt you know, hunt the periphery, hunt the edges, hunt, you know, hunt them coming in and out and, and be conscious about your entry and exit and, and you'll see the results. And, and he's really started to buy into that finally. And, you know, we're starting to see that, that curve come back up. No question about it. Right. Well, that's awesome. So have you done any timber work on the property, like uh, some hinge cutting or like to, in, you know, yeah. increase bedding? Yeah, for sure. Yeah. So our property is part of what New York State would ADA plan, which is a which is a tax plan. To you know, it reduces your property taxes in New York by like eighty percent. But with this plan, you have to hire a forester who comes in and does a five-year plan that you submit to the state that says, you know, my my current forest composition is this, and I'm going to do X to make it better over the next five years. So with that, you know, program that we're in, we've kind of been, um, you know, complying to it. And through that, we're doing timber stand improvement and all the you know, hinge cutting and all the, all the good stuff that you want to do your property, you know, to, to really have it thrive. And it's been, has it, has it been successful? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. You know, that, that that's another concept that's, uh, you know, kind of conveying to my, to my dad over time that, because it is his property, you know, and I, I respect that. I do need to respect that, <clears throat> that, you know, the pretty forest isn't, you know, you don't like that, you know, the yeah. park like setting isn't really what you, what you want. You want, you want successive growth. You want, you know, you know some, some thickness and, and some edge and some change. <clears throat> so we have done some, some, uh, big time logging, but it's, it's probably been at least 10 years since then. Um, it's just kind of been maintenance TSM since. Gotcha. So, but you can see the. Oh, go ahead. So it, it's worked. So overall, I mean, this all this work you've been doing is translated into a better hunting property. Oh yeah. Now, no about it. has it also translated into better quality of bucks? I would say so. Um, at least the opportunities at them. I don't know if I'm, you know, you know, palpably changing a, a deer to go from hundred. 20 inch deer to 130 inch deer. I don't, I don't know if you know the, you know, the, uh, 
food plots and, and, and secondary growth and all the work we've done, if it's quite doing that. But I do know it's giving us increased chances, you know, if, if we if we come about it the right way. Yeah, yeah, makes a lot of sense. All right, so with uh, the ter- you got the terrain and, and whatnot there. Um, so it's steep, right? You have specific areas oh, yeah. for food plots. How do you approach that property every you know every year? Is it the same approach every single year, or does it evolve, or does it change as time goes on? Yeah. So due to the nature of this kind of hollow road, you know, splitting the property more or less, and and having the high points be on the sides of it, you really have a bottom up type of approach, Dan. And uh, that can kind of be, you know, it can be tough at times. It's, if you're hunt, you really can't hunt mornings um, too aggressively because you know they're already in there by the time you're coming up, and with that wind over their, <laughs> wind over their back looking right down at you coming up from the road, it's just never going to work. Right. Um, <clears throat> so uh, evening hunts are are uh, you know are definitely uh, your your best bet in my opinion uh, when approaching it. Uh, what we're dealing with in the southern tier of New York for sure. Gotcha, and. Uh... I mean, is there any leeway to be aggressive and and make big moves or or kind of think outside the box, or is it based oh, off yeah. the property and based off of how they move? You're limited to doing it a certain way every year. No, I think you know, if, if, there are certain you know subtleties that you really need to key into in in a, in a big. Uh, big timber setting like that because you're not going to have the obvious pinch points that you have at you know certain certain landscapes so you really need to key into these subtleties you know these really subtle ditches and 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 creek beds and ravines and things like that that might not jump off on top of but they're there when, when you get boots on the ground yeah and uh you know those types of those types of features are what what you really need to use to to access for sure so muzzleloader all right, man. I've always wanted to get into, like, try to, you know, shooting a muzzleloader because Iowa has a muzzleloader season uh, that kind of lays into the mid to late part of October, and it's just something that I've never done, but always been interested in. Um, aside from your bow hunting, what kind of got you into, you know, the muzzleloader hunting? Yeah, yeah. So muzzleloader hunting is kind of. You know, as soon as I was eligible to do it as a, as a young kid, I was I was after it because I just kind of emulated what my father and my uncles were doing and and things like that. Uh, so I got into it right off the get go. Um, I had a savage fifty cal uh, for years, but uh, ended up turning in for CVA, um, which is a, which is a great model. Uh, I just I just really like the additional uh, facets that you get hunting in. You know that part of with an extended range in that time of the year, it's just a, it's a it's a wonderful edge to have, I think, in in my opinion. Uh, being cooped up bow hunting, uh, I love bow hunting. Don't get me wrong, I'm, I'm a bow hunter, um, but having that uh, additional edge is is is, is quite tempting, gotcha. <laughs> and it is pleasing at times. When is the New York muzzleloader season? Oh man, it would be the. It changes, you know, year to year because it's the it'll be the second week in December. Gotcha. Okay. So then, um, it's only a seven or I think a seven or nine day season. Something something to that effect. Gotcha. So what's the learning curve with the muzzleloader? 
I mean, I've shot one before, but I've never sighted one in. I've never shot one repeatedly. Yeah. Uh, is there a big learning curve? Is it something that uh, uh, you I have... don't think so. No? Okay. Uh, no, I, I think, uh, you know, the if, if you're experienced with firearms and, and uh, you know, you have the diligence to practice and things like that, you'll, you know, you'll be fine uh, if you're not near the firearms, you know, for sure. Uh, the, the times that can be tricky are, are if you're shooting either you know smoke or smokeless powder. You know that can that can change things up on somebody who's not used to it. You know, pull, shooting a firearm and having a whole plume of smoke pop out at you. So um, that that's one feature of, of hunting with a muzzleloader that you do you do need to kind of uh, be prepared for. Gotcha. So is it something that uh, like anybody can really do? I, I mean, or do you have to have some kind of skill set for that? Um, I, you know, I don't think there's any particular different, uh, style that I go about with a muzzleloader, um, uh, because our muzzleloader season is late season. It just kind of blends into how I was, you know, hunting prior to, to the opening of muzzleloader season. Um, I, I do with some of the big, big snows we get here. I do like to track, uh, with the muzzleloader to tend to, uh, track, you know, a doe late, late in the uh, muzzleloader season. That's always fun to do. Um, you know, I don't get to do that with a bow in early season, so it's always fun for sure. Cool. And then uh, from a from a a powder, like I don't, I'm pretty green to all of the all of this muzzleloader stuff. So uh, you put is the one that you do a, use a front load? I mean, do you front load everything? Yeah, front load everything, and it's a capsulized powder, so there's no there's no loose. You know, there's no. Uh, revolutionary uh horn that i'm using or anything like that uh i'm using kind of a modernized uh um version of it gotcha for sure gotcha what's the uh what's the range of a muzzleloader um it, it depends on on what you know what your combination is i would say um but i don't feel comfortable shooting it now really past 150 yards really at most um because of how heavy the bullet in your combination tends to be, your your uh, trajectory can be, uh, you know, quite severe. That parabola can be, uh, you know, banana, so to speak. Yeah. And you know, the further out you go, it can be, you know, it's it's you just lose too much kinetic energy in that bullet, and it would be really hard to to keep uh, that type of shot in your scope. I think if if you wanted to really push it way past. Gotcha. So what's uh what's the range? <clears throat> I would typically. I've shot all my deer with, with the muzzleloader probably at, you know, 75, 80 yards. 75, 80 yards. Gotcha. You know, just where you couldn't get them with a bow. You know what I mean? And it, when it comes together at that range, you know, you kind of giggle at times that, you know, you couldn't have got that deer with a bow. Yeah, for sure. And then, uh, I mean, could you go out to 100 or 120? What what would be the max that you would feel comfortable shooting? Oh, that probably, probably that 150 number. Okay. Gotcha. Is that what you, you kind of? That, that 150 would be my would be my ceiling. Gotcha. So to speak. And do you do you practice out to that every every year, or are you the guy who just yeah. pull, pulls it out and shoots it? I I no, I, I try to practice every year at that distance, and and I just for whatever reason that tends to just be my personal limit. Gotcha. Um, I'm I'm sure there's people that are comfortable shooting different distances with with, with whatever their loadout is, but I've kind of uh, drawn a personal line in the sand at that number. Gotcha. Okay, cool. Now, s- switching up again, <laughs> what uh, what's the rut like? Uh, and what are, what are some of the rut timings in New York? 
Western New York. Yeah. So I would say that, you know, the, the, the rut in New York lines up a lot with, with what you guys have in the Midwest. Um, I, I would say the, the peak of, of breeding would be in that, you know, November 25th area in there, November 22nd to the 25th. So that, you know, that first and second week of November, just like with you guys, is really when you want to be in the woods. Right. Okay, cool. And then what about, uh, like, same as late October? Are, are they able to get in there and, like, the, that's when the big boys start getting on their feet, showing yeah. up in daylight? Absolutely. Absolutely. That point in, in, in our archery season, that, uh, you know, week leading up to Halloween, I notice uh, just a huge uptick in activity. Right. And I really feel that, that, you know, they're not quite there yet. Gotcha. But that is really when you can get some of those big ones early that are, you know, just just getting up and just getting interested. Yeah. So what about uh, things that deer in New York do or don't do compared to what you know about the rest of the nation? Oh, like if there's anything, you know, unique to, to yeah. how deer behave around here. Um, I don't, you know, I think at the end of the day, deer, deer are deer, um, you know, here and there, you know, when you really boil down all the factors, um, I don't think there's something crazy different about the deer here, but, you know, from, from what you guys hunt other than, you know, the, the climate that they've had to adapt to and, and some of the terrain features. Um, I would, no, I don't think I would say there's you know, something specific or unique, uh, uh, you know, not like, you know, in the South, how they have, you know, the crazy rut down in the South. I've always heard about that. Um, nothing like that up here that I, that I know of. Gotcha. There is a white deer herd. Actually, this is an interesting fact. In uh, along one of these lakes, there's a huge old army depot that is uh, fenced in. I can't remember quite how big it is. But there's a herd of white deer. They're not albino. Um, they don't have, you know, the pink features, I'm pretty sure. Um, and it's just, it's crazy to see these pictures of these white, white deer. I don't think anybody hunts it. Um, it's just kind of a, I guess there's, there's that anomaly in the state, but, uh, yeah, uh, it's kind of an oddball. Is that, uh, do they call those pieball deer, pieball deer or something like that? I don't know if they're, they're you know, just fully white pieballs or if you Google it, um, it'll probably come up. Uh, Seneca army depot deer. It's just these. They're white deer. They have, uh, I'm pretty sure, you know, the, the brown uh, closing features on all, you know, their ears and, and whatnot. They don't have that pink like a like a, uh, an albino deer would. Huh. Um, yeah, so they are kind of like, I guess, what, what you would say is like a fully piebald deer. Gotcha. Um, but very, very weird. Gotcha. Sure. All right, so um, going into this upcoming season uh, and every season that you hunt New York, um what what are your expectations from a maybe an antler size or an age class? Oh yeah, so you know in New York you have to have realistic expectations and know what's on your property, know what you're, know what you're dealing with. Um, if, if you know you go out with your sights on a sixty-inch I mean that's that's the top one percent in the state, and and but the likelihood of, of that that being. A, a target of yours, I just don't think is that high. So I think, you know, if you kind of taper it back to like a 10%, top 10% of your bucks, which I think is, you know, that 130 type of number, um, that's, that's, that's kind of my, my expectations every year, uh, going into the season, you know, north of, north of, you know, three and a half and up type of deal. 
Gotcha. So you're roughly looking for a, a three and a half year old every single year. And um, what was the age class again? Or excuse me, the, the antler size roughly? That's oh, a- I, average. I, mean, I, would, I would probably, on average, I would say a three and a half year old for the state probably be 120 inch deer, something like that. 120. I've noticed on trail camera over the years that, you know, I, just, I, I have deer that, that don't seem to pop like they do in, in the Midwest. And I don't know if it's nutrition based or or genetics based or, or what have you, but you know, they hit three and a half and it's like they're, they're topped out and they're only really going to add on mass after that. Um, and they, and they do get big, but they don't, they don't have seem to have those, you know, 30 inch, 20 inch type years of, of added growth, you know, past, uh, the three and a half and four and a half for me, from what I've seen. And that's yeah. probably because, you know, most of the deer don't get past, you know, so the, the turnover in the state, uh, with the age class is just so high. Just so, you know, not many deer get to that get that chance yeah. know, to grow to a Crockett class. Yeah. So did you mention that you were going to be heading to a different state this year? Yes, sir. Yep. Going to uh, Kentucky. I've been going to Kentucky the uh, past few years, um, kind of winging it on public. Gotcha. And uh, is, is that yeah, an early season hunt? Yep. Yep. So they're still, they'll still be involved uh, at Labor Day weekend. So. Oh, nice. So, That'll be an absolute bass. Oh, yeah. How do you uh, how do you approach that hunt? It's on public ground. Uh, you got other people that you're competing with, or do you kind of have a spot where it's kind of? I kind of have a yeah. I kind of have one of those remote spots in a, in a real big place. Um, I've got my eye on. I put a buddy there last year um, who was his first time coming with me down there, and uh, first said he shoots a velvet eight point, <laughs> and I come home with egg soup. Uh, so I got this uh, certain spot in mind that's on a very large chunk of public, and it's and it's pretty isolated. Um, so yeah, I I think that'll that'll keep me busy this this uh, three day weekend. That I'm going to be there. So wow! So you're hunting for three days, and how many years in a row have you gone? Uh, this will be third. Third. This will be the third. Gotcha. Yeah, All I right. had a uh, big deer down there that I I had been seeing um, on an adjacent uh, private land was. Yeah, found that a VHD this past year. You know, I've been hunting up two years, and it's like all about seventy-five inches or something to that effect. Um, you said so that would have been nice. But you said a hundred and seventy-five inches. Yes, sir. Yep. Wow, wow, that's a stud. And uh, yeah, big, ha- big, clean ten. Have you ever shot a velvet deer before? Oh no, no. no. Uh, I've been down there. You know, given a time to get it done. Uh, with a little knowledge base on three days. So it's been a, a, a kind of prolonged learning process going down there, but you know, I feel like I'm getting warm on warmer every time. Yeah. And, uh, I was able to put my buddy in the right spot last year and he was able to execute and get his job done. So hopefully, nice. uh, I haven't been able to do as much kind of pre-scouting. I have a, a buddy down there. I usually contact and he kind of looks out for me. Uh, but I haven't had much time to do that with having a six month old and, and uh, being busy with work and, and life. Right. So so when your buddy shot that uh, velvet buck, did he have to go through any special uh, steps to preserve the velvet on that antler, or did he like just be able to pack it in ice and take it to a taxidermist? Yeah. Um, actually, uh, in the area that my buddy lives, the taxidermist that he knows, so he, uh, it's not the the biggest eight point deer, but it is a it is a velvet buck, you know. So my my buddy did want to get it mounted, and uh, I'm not sure if he used anything outside of like a formaldehyde type of you know preservative, uh, but 
I he got the note back probably a couple of months ago, and it looks it looks pretty good. The uh, the note it looks uh, you know just like it was when we you know, we dragged him out. So I would say probably over time it'll probably fade, but um, you know really looks cool. Yeah. Yeah, that's awesome. You know, I had actually had a conversation with some guys uh, today, actually. I'm recording this on Tuesday. This will launch on Wednesday. But um, about whether or not I would find any type of interest shooting a velvet buck. And I, I guess for me, I'm pretty indifferent. Um, unless it was some kind of maybe a mule deer up in high country, maybe. But or right. or unless Iowa for some reason opened up a like a, <laughs> like a late August early September type of hunt um, to where I could get the opportunity at one of those bucks right. um, get revenge on some of those ones that leave you <laughs> yeah absolutely absolutely so uh, that would be interesting but as far as you know maybe going to a different state and hunting a I don't know, a, like a velvet season. I guess at this time in my life, I'm really not that interested in it. What kind of draws you to wanting to go and hunt that? Right. So I think it was just, you know, the total lack of overlap with anything going on in, in uh, Western New York here. Uh, just that opportunity just kind of scratched the itch, so to speak, that you get so bad this time of year, you know, and you could go down and do something you really can't do anywhere else. I think, uh, I think there's an early season in Wyoming um, that you can also shoot a, a velvet whitetail in, but uh, not too many other places that you get that type of opportunity, and, and it doesn't overlap or interfere with anything you have going back home. So I think that was my initial, you know, uh, impulse to go down there for those uh, for those reasons. Cool. So uh, um, you you got the place. You've got kind. Of, you've been there several times, and uh, is that a big, you know, obviously that's a long way from where you currently hunt, but is there a, oh, it's, yeah. is there a big terrain feature difference between where you hunt in New York versus where you hunt in Kentucky? Well, you know, the funny thing is, is I think this, this certain area in Kentucky, um, it, it, it kind of is, is so similar to where I hunt back home. And that's kind of what drew, drew me to it. Um, that I wouldn't have to kind of relearn the wheel in my hunting approach, uh, going down there. It's very steep. It's very hilly. And, uh, I can kind of, you know, take my my tool tool set from Western New York and bring it down there, and there's not too much of a of a translation difference or, or, or a big learning curve. Gotcha. So when you're down in Kentucky, do you bait, or are you just kind of setting up? Right. So I have baited in in, in the past couple of years on private lands. Private land that uh, also butts real small private chunk here butts the uh, this huge chunk of public. And I just haven't had, I clearly haven't had any luck doing it. And, um, I just, you know, this year I'm, I'm abandoning it and kind of just going to, you know, cause we can't do that here in New York. I'm, I'm not familiar with it. It's not part of you know anything I've ever done before. And it just didn't feel comfortable if you know what I mean, Dan. Right. And, uh, you know, just, <laughs> and I didn't have any success, so it didn't reinforce any, any of that type of behavior. So I'm just going to kind of go with, go with what I know and, and, and try and read sign and, and get it done. Yeah. I don't know. Like being from Iowa, we, it's not legal to bait. If I, if I ever went to hunt to us, you know, on a state, let's say like Ohio or Kentucky where you are allowed to bait, I, I don't know what yeah. my feelings would be. I, I think that would be a weird feeling all of a sudden, even though I knew it was yeah. legal, it would feel weird 
baiting exactly yeah baiting a deer it's just so it's just nothing like you've ever done it's just but it's you know when you talk to the people down there it's it's so much a part of what they have done yeah and you know it's that's why I gave it you know gave it a college try so to speak but it just didn't feel right um, and and not not like you said it, it's legal totally legal and I totally respect anybody that does it but hey I don't think so it's for me you know at the end of the day yeah is what it is man um yeah so you know kentucky any place else you're going no not in particular um at this point in my life uh with, with a six month old um, i'm probably scaling back the trips in, in, in the uh, foreseeable future before i kind of go adventuring again uh, right like you know i know you're going out west this year that's something i would love to do um, go out and chase uh, bugling elk with a bow. That would be, you know, awesome. I can only imagine that that type of experience, Dan. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I don't know how much bugling we're gonna get because we're gonna be going over that first week of September as well. So we're gonna be like right. uh, a, a week and a half before the uh, before their rut kind of hits their peak. But yeah. you know, we could catch the beginning of, I guess the pre-rut, my buddy kind of said, you know, that I talk that I'm going out there with, he kind of talks about how they start to herd up at that time. You know, they, the bulls start to be a little bit more active and, uh, you know, going and corralling all of the, all the cows, but you know, who knows? Um, kind of probably hear a couple sporadic ones, right? Right. I'm sure we will. I'm sure we will. So let's, uh, ask this then. What are your, bucket list hunts do you have do you think about that at all like for me i think about that all the time yeah yeah oh yeah for sure i would love to go out west and, and, and shoot a mule deer yeah. um stock it out, out in the, kind of the wide open i see you know grew up west and you had to go to the dry spot and I just see the longest mule deer out west and it's just a you know growing up in uh like uh eastern landscape east coast landscape where it's real, you don't have those types of views yeah, i don't i can't even fathom you know what that all would be like yeah so that's definitely one um like i said you know, bugling white or uh, bugling elk would be one for sure um i don't know if i'm as interested in like a moose hunt but uh who knows yeah um, how about you any other ones no man i think like I, i'm looking at my desk right here and i have a little bucket list box it's like a i have this i made this wooden desk and i doodle on it right so i, I have marker and pen and i just kind of doodle yeah. on it and i have this a box here moose caribou elk mule deer and that's in no specific order but those are some of the animals that i want to kill and specifically like a high country mule deer like i love watching those youtube videos yeah. where those guys are uh you know they're at ten thousand whatever feet and there's the, right. these mule deer there's they they locate them through a spotting scope they watch them bed oh, down crazy optics yeah, yeah. and yeah. then and then they go and they go attack them Right. And then, oh, they, right. And they, you know, somebody ends up always taking off their boots. Right. Yeah, right. They either <laughs> sneaking up on them. Yep. And they either, they walk, you know, they, they walk up a thousand feet and maybe like four or five miles. And then they end up missing the shot or they get spooked and then they have to walk all the way back. And then they, then they, it's basically like they get one stock a day if they locate one in a good right. position. And, uh, and it, you're it, occupied the whole time though yeah it's probably exactly. a whole different, whole different feel absolutely absolutely well man um i really appreciate you taking time out of your day to, to hop on the uh hop on the podcast and bs with us man absolutely 
Absolutely. Love the podcast and uh, hope all is well, Dan. And uh, I'll be listening going forward for sure. And ladies and gentlemen, that is your hump day edition of the Nine Finger Chronicles podcast. Hopefully you guys enjoyed it. Again, sorry for a little bit of the, uh, the disturbance there. But great information nonetheless. Huge shout out to all of you for taking time to download and listen to this podcast. Huge shout out to Tom for taking time out of his day to uh, hop on and chat with us. Huge shout out to all of the partners of this podcast. Exodus, Wasp. Lone Wolf, Deer Lab, Prime, Ripcord, Ozonics, Hunter Safety Systems. Please go out and support those companies. I know right now we're all thinking about going out and buying hunting gear for the upcoming season. Please go and buy from those products, man, and tell them I sent you. Trust me, they're very high-quality products, very good products. So there's that. Now, if you haven't already, please subscribe to this podcast, Sportsman's Nation. Search for it love it like it share it and uh, i'm telling you man it's becoming more and more popular and i know that because i looked at the statistics today uh over the past month we've had a i'd say 5,000 to 7,000 more downloads um in a particular week so that's good that means uh, a lot of people are finding the information on not only my podcast but all the podcasts on the sportsman's nation useful Uh, if you haven't already social media man we do a lot through social media instagram and facebook are the big ones not only for the nine finger chronicles but for the sportsman's nation as well so go check out all four of those pages and uh, go to itunes or wherever you download your podcast and leave a review man that is much much needed so uh thank you for that and last but not least man you got to go check out the nine finger chronicles t-shirt it is up and for sale at bustedrack.com and uh it's pretty badass so go check it out ladies and gentlemen thank you for another awesome wednesday (laughs) listen again i am so tired right now i'm gonna go to bed Our friends at Hunter Safety Systems are reminding us to please wear your damn safety harness. Have a good rest of the week.